Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. This episode that you're going to listen to today was recorded two weeks ago. The idea originally was to talk about how much do you need to know to feel. In the meantime, the intro that I'm recording is post both concerts. It was just so incredible to sing for the women back at home and for the women here in Israel. I want to personally thank all the women who came out to see and support me, some of whom I got to meet for the first time. And just a side note, if you have been following the Ilanid episode that came out a month or two ago, Deborah was on it. She was one of the stars in Ilani, the children's choir from Moscow. So she lives in Israel now, and she sang two of the songs with me. And it was really special to be singing together with her. It's amazing to be here. It's my first time back in four years. Last time I was right before COVID. Our mission started a few hours ago, and we already heard from a soldier who survived. October 7th, she was one of the observers She's been speaking four times a week on the weeks she's off from the army because she went back three weeks after. Ariella Rebecca is doing this work to honor the lives of the 42 friends she lost that day and four of her friends who are still in captivity. If you'd like to see a picture of us together, it's on Instagram. Earlier today, I got to spend time with my parents, visit my grandparents, my grandfather, who's 92 years old. My sister took me to Har Herzl. I'm trying to pack in as much as I can into this trip. I want to thank all the people back home who are with me in spirit and are helping so I can have these experiences. Without any further ado, welcome back to the Francisca Show, everyone. This is at least a second time, maybe even third time for all of you. <laughs> well, it's so great to have you back. Awesome to be here. I will introduce you. I will start with Shoshana. You're first on my left. Shoshana Keats-Jaskell, you are an activist, an incredible fighter on behalf of women, Jewish women, and the Jewish nation at large. You are in Israel now. You're our only Israeli panelist here and co-founder of Chochobat Nashim that also has a podcast that talks about some of the important things you do very lively and active on Twitter. So we'll <laughs> bring that up. And we have Avital Tijig Goldschmidt, who's also my sister-in-law, Rebitson and journalist. Avital is very active on one front as a Rebitson in a leadership capacity, especially with unaffiliated or less affiliated Jews on the Upper East Side, as well as a journalist perspective. And for today's topic, it is important to have someone like you on. And you've been published on, in every elite outlet out there today. So great to have you on. And Carly Chadash, a local friend here, a sex therapist, and the, the mastermind behind all the mikvah attendant trainings that all the mikvahs have and should have. And you were one of our most popular episodes here on The Francisca Show of all time. So it's so great to have a super collective on here today. So it's great to have you on. I'll, I'll have you just say hi to each other because I think it'd be sweet for people to hear you interact with each other for a minute. Hi, hi everyone. <laughs> Lovely to see you. Carly, nice to meet you. Avital, love you. 
<laughs> I love you Have too. You it's so good to, to see you. Together's episodes. Yeah, Avital, I was in your writing workshop also with the OU. Oh, that's right. Oh my gosh. I remember. I remember your submission for sure. Okay, this all makes sense now. I didn't realize you and Freddie were connected. Very yeah, cool. We'll jump into our episode that is two or even three tiered. And I think this is the balance that everyone is struggling to find today. And as women, as Jewish women, there's this post October 7th reality where we we're addicted to the news. We want to be advocates to Israel. We feel a responsibility to know what happened to victims, to survivors, to the kidnapped. On the other hand, we're trying to live life as normal as possible for the sake of our children, for the sake of our jobs, for the sake of continuity of the Jewish people and preserving our mental health. So today we'll address social media, we'll address topics as basic as trying to have an intimate relationship with your spouse, your partner, and, and just at the same time being exposed to such horrific graphic sexual violence. And, um, and I'll throw it out there. I've been personally struggling with having thoughts and images in my mind in the intimate department. And I went on to these groups online to find, you know, what other women might be feeling. And it, it's definitely extremely common. As much as people are talking about it, it hasn't been done deeply enough. We haven't gotten deep enough into this topic to have actual tools and resources, because I think it's such a collective trauma. Everyone is experiencing on a, in a very lonely and individual level. So I'm hoping to use this platform to, on one hand, discuss our responsibility and addictive nature to consuming content and being advocates, and on the other hand, preserving our mental health. Carly, you're the only one not on mute, so you'll go first. Okay. Um, well, what you just said really resonated with me. And it's something that I know in the mental health world, there's studies now that are being conducted. Tali Rosenbaum is authoring a study. The first phase was just completed talking about vicarious trauma. And a lot of the information that we have in the mental health world is based on post-traumatic stress disorder, but we're not in the post of this situation yet. We're still very much in the present. And I think when you said that we're experiencing a collective trauma, but we're also experiencing an individual trauma, that was the part that really resonated with me. Because I think that everyone's internalization of this post-October 7th reality is very personal, very individual. And there's a lot of confusion and sadness and pain and a lot of layers of different emotions, sometimes really conflicting emotions that are presenting in our interpersonal spaces, in our intimate relationships, in our friendships. And it's like this constant dichotomy of how can I maintain presence in the present moment and also recognize that I'm still in crisis mode. My body is still in a state of fight, flight, or freeze. I, I don't trust my body to have the response that I think is the right response right now because I've never been in this place before and I don't know what the right response is. And so I, I think that what, what you're describing your own experiences, I think is really resonant. I actually just did a training um, in November for the, the Eden Center for really experienced college teachers um, on, Shoshana, you were there, on working with colleagues who experienced sexual abuse as children. And I actually changed 
the whole end of my presentation to talk about vicarious trauma and to talk about teaching something like Tahar Samishbacha, teaching about intimacy when we talk about the Kedusha, the holiness and the sanctity of our intimate spaces when we've all been violated. And we all have this knowledge that there was pervasive sexual trauma in our own community. And I think that that makes everyone's safety feel really threatened. Can you define vicarious and pervasive? Yeah. So pervasive means common and widespread. So I think within the the Jewish community, within the within the Jewish feminist community, the 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 Jewish community that's very much aware of the use of sexual war crimes as what is now being presented as a legitimate form of resistance by some circles is really compounding that trauma of the knowledge that so many women have been and are being continuously continuously violated um, by Hamas right now and puts everybody in this state of like, is how can I be present in my own sexual space with this knowledge? How can I feel pleasure without feeling guilty? And how do I stay, how do I reconcile those two really conflicting pieces of that puzzle? Vicarious trauma is a phenomenon that happens where one person isn't impacted directly by a trauma, but they're impacted because of the proximity that they have to a trauma that is occurring. So someone who is a very close family member of someone who is in a car accident that is a near-death experience may not experience the trauma of the actual car accident, but they experience what's called vicarious trauma, where they're traumatized by the knowledge or they're traumatized by the impact of the witnessing of the trauma that is happening to the person in their inner circle. And I think that because of the access to news that we have, because of the, the impact of social media, because of all of the first person accounts, which are so important for us to listen to and hear from and learn from and to report on so that the people who are challenging the validity of these statements really understand the reality of the situation that has happened and is happening right now is resulting in a lot of vicarious trauma for those of us that either don't live in Israel or live in Israel and we're not personally impacted on October 7th. Thank you. Avital? I really defer to Carly on this because this is her expertise. On an anecdotal level, certainly this is something we are seeing. I mean, I'm seeing in in dealing with real life community, especially in the beginning, after October 7th, there were many women who were struggling with this. Exactly what you're saying, Carly, the words that you're giving, like we didn't even have the words to be able to describe that struggle of vicarious trauma. We actually... I think within a week of October 7th, I already held, based on feedback, based on women saying we're really struggling mentally, we held a, I don't want to call it a shiur because it was really, it was like a discussion, like safe space in my home and just like had, I don't know, I think I had 30 women show up and it was the sort of thing, I think it was Thursday night after and it was like super last minute. And I just sent a WhatsApp text. If anyone is struggling, come be with other women. And specifically this notion that this is a war on women. This is a war on, on the women of Israel and that women showed up in sort of in really surprising ways for them. This was really a necessary conversation. They felt they needed immediately afterwards, they needed a female space to process and to mourn together. 
which was, I think, very unusual. And we haven't seen, I think, in in the wake of other, I mean, obviously there hasn't been a catastrophe in our in our lifetimes, at least as big as this, but specifically the idea that this was like a gendered tragedy in some ways, and there needed to be a female space for that. We did some learning about the use of sexual violence, get the, histor- the historical use of sexual violence in war on Jewish women. Um, we learned Gemaras together from the time of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And then we also did, even just like reading, rereading Echa in the wake of October 7th was very chilling. And I think even for someone who's you know, obviously read these texts before, we read them annually, we know these sort of kind of famous stories from the Gemara of the time, of that time period, but coming back to it with this new lens was very disturbing. Um, And it just really felt contemporary as sort of in my role as a religious leader, for whatever, however we want to phrase the strange term of being a Rebbitzin, I find that there's a lot of power and validation in seeing one's experiences, whether real or sort of firsthand or vicarious, finding the naming, finding the language, finding the framework to understand these experiences in older texts, there's some strange comfort in that. But certainly this has been something we've been seeing, I've been seeing on a day to day. And I think Carly is right that we are certainly not past this. And we will not know for many years really how much, what a trauma this has had on Jewish women around the world. Yeah, and we're not past this because we keep getting new information. And then we'll get a video from three or four of the kidnapped young women who horrifying things are still being happened to. And this is just keeps reoccurring. I just want to add one more thing. I think it's not only just not ending because, as you said, Francesca, that this is we're finding new information. It's not ending because there continues to be denial because the world continues to deny what happened to Jewish women. And every single survivor of sexual abuse, and my God, I have interviewed dozens of them, and now I'm speaking as a journalist, they are watching very closely. They see this, they see these denials, and they see these denials are specifically targeting Jews. Shoshana, would you like to? There are really a lot of layers to, people say that all the time, but like, there are so many layers to this. There's the individual, there's the national, there's the peoplehood, there's the gender. Um, there's so many layers to this trauma and we aren't even allowed to deal with it as a trauma. Like we can't deal with this happening. We have to deal with it happening, it continuing to happen, being denied that it's happening, using, say, claiming that the that the claims of rape and sexual assault are being used for a genocide. So it's, it's really like you feel if, if you are a Jew who cares about, or who's able to speak up for her people, you feel attacked from so many sides, so many angles that there's no sort of self care or dealing with you're constantly, I'm constantly, we are constantly, both exposing ourselves to the most horrific images and videos and testimonies that not all of us are equipped to listen to or watch or hear. I can tell you in the beginning, I refused to watch anything, to see anything 
I said, do not, if you put anything in your feed, I will unfollow you. If you put anything in the WhatsApp groups of the activists, and we have so many WhatsApp groups of activists and advocates who are spending 24 seven advocating for Israel and people were sending things left and right. And I said, you have to stop. You can't, even if you have the best of intentions, you cannot put this on a place where, where we can't filter, you know, and, and it's just not okay. First of all, even as an individual, you may be on a Tuesday, be unable to watch something, but on a Wednesday, be in a different place. And you have to be able to choose. You have to be able to decide. You have to be able to, to know that in you have an hour to cry and not be with your kids. You have to know so many things before you can even put yourself in that position. If you feel that you need to put yourself in that position. So what I was saying before was that I refused for a long time. I refused. And I said, I don't care. I don't care who, who denies it. I'm not doing that to myself. I'm not doing it to my neshama. I'm not. And unfortunately, as things went on and people were denying it and denying it and denying it, I slowly allowed myself to read more and to see a little bit more. And then I go back and forth between one of my favorite lines, and I guess it's funny to call it that, but one of my favorite lines is the Yiddish proverb, like an anti-Semite doesn't accuse a Jew of stealing because they believe the Jew took from something from them. They just want to see her turn out her pockets. And and that's what I feel the world is doing to us, right? Like, they know that the women were raped. They don't, it's not, they don't really want to deny it. They want us to prove it. They want us to send them the images. They want us to show the videos. They want us to scream and yell because they get hana'a, they get pleasure out of our pain. And so for, again, I, I keep going back and forth. I don't have one answer. There's no one answer that I can give you. This is the right answer because I don't think there's one answer, even for the same person on a different day. I don't think there's one answer and I don't think this is a solvable issue. I think this is part of being a Jew in the world and going through life. And the only thing, the only thing that has kept me a little bit sane is the fact that my people have prepared me for this. Whether it was my survivor grandparents who basically told me like, always keep money in the mattress or the Poles are worse than the Germans, or it's sitting at Pesach and saying the hold over door, like your life as a Jew is not going to be easy. And I only know that the phone has an off button for a reason. And I beg you all to use it more often than you think you need to, because you really need it. Thank you. Online on Twitter and Instagram, there's a lot of, as you said, they want to see turn out your pockets. So do you have tips on how you've been handling the the heat and and all the it's it's like you post something and then the response makes you bubble and get so angry and then you're go they're just twisting everything and they're going back and okay so do you have any tips from I know Avital and Shoshana are very active on Twitter. I just want to know how you deal with that because people get sucked into it, either for pleasure or as an activist. Let's speak to that a little bit. Okay. I, ha I have a lot of, I have a very, very, I can't even say it's a love-hate relationship. I have a very difficult relationship with Twitter. I definitely built my career on that platform. For the last year, it has turned into something, well, the last few years, really, it has turned into something sort of untenable. For me personally, it was, and this is really trite, but it was really bad for my mental health. It wasn't just addiction. It was like, you know, I've seen a lot of journalists, a lot of people in my industry 
kind of lose their minds because of a website. It's really sad. It's really sad um, because it obviously unleashes the ugliest sides of people. The The algorithm is such that it, it banks on outrage. Uh, and these are obvious ideas, but that the, the, the sheer, the structure of it, the, the goals of it are, are there to provoke us. And it was not good for me. And I'm someone who I have my outrages and I've written about them and I care about them, but I think day to day, it's just not, it's not a healthy place. It doesn't mean that I, I haven't left Twitter. I still use it from time to time. I recently buckled and even got the Twitter blue, whatever it's called, du jour. But I think that it is, it is very destructive. And obviously it is a place rife with hatred and specifically anti-Semitism. And by the way, also a lot of misogyny. So this was, it was a hard, it's been, it's been a hard few years for me regarding the platform. I haven't really used it for talking about Israel uh, as much as some may expect of me. I don't know if I'm the voice that needs to be. And the reason I say that is there are just so many more active people who are really dedicated to this and, and I think have built names on this. And I'd rather just support them. Those, you know, those whose views or analyses I support, I would rather just platform them than sort of re rehashing it as my own, so to speak. And I see a lot of that happening in activism in general. I also think there's an important distinction between activism and journalism. I am in the end of the day, truly a journalist. And you'll see in my next story, I look at these things as much as possible, in, which is really hard since October 7th, but really trying to keep a very sober eye because that is so essential in, in readers' trust and credibility. You know, I try to really walk a very fine line there. So Does I think, anyone want to add? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I actually, I want to give some practical tips because I think at the end of the day, if we don't know how to do it, we can't protect ourselves. So a very, a very good friend of mine, actually, kind of like what you said, Avital, when you just, when you said, does anyone need to talk? So I don't even remember what, two weeks, three weeks into the war, I went onto one of the groups and I'm like, guys, I really could just use to sit down and, and have a powwow, a conversation uh, with you guys and, and just, just camaraderie. We are online together all the time, but just to sit down and get hugs. And we got together in Jerusalem and with a bunch of people, you know, and I said, I need, you know, like, I, can't, I don't know what to do with all these comments on Instagram. And my friend, yeah, I should give you a shout out. Yeah, Levantan, she grabbed my phone and she's like, hello, there are words that you can censor out of your comments. And she just did watermelons and, you know, free Palestine and like all of these things. And all of a sudden she like cleared out the comments from my Instagram feed. And I was just like, it was like, hallelujah. It was like you could breathe again. And that's, so that's Instagram. You can filter things out of your comments. That's first of all. Second of all, on Twitter, I used to feel bad blocking people because I felt like, oh, people have the right for free speech, but they're not there to speak. They are there to troll. They are there to bother you. They are there to have you turn out your pockets. So I have very liberally used the Iron Dome of Twitter, which is the block button. And I never go on the, uh, for you, I think there's a, I don't forget what it's called, um, like you have you who you're following and now Twitter has like a for you thing. So I'm like away from that. And what Avital said is very true. If you follow the people who speak 
the truth, who speak courageously, who speak honestly, and who speak for the Jewish people, you will actually get a lot of chizuk from there. And I, I found, shockingly, I didn't realize how many other Jews were listening to me. Meaning, okay, the people who don't agree with me, maybe they're listening, maybe they're not. But I've got messages from Jews around the world saying, thank you for saying what you're saying. I need to hear this. And that's what keeps me going, is that I realize that we are really all scared and traumatized and feeling horribly. And the more we strengthen one another, the more the community is strengthened in general. And so I find that if I focus on strengthening us instead of, oh my God, look at this horrible stuff that's out there, which is super easy to do, then I feel like a much, much better experience and I feel safer that way. And Shoshana, do you want to tell us a few of the names? Who people should follow? Oh, for sure. There's so many people. <laughs> do you want me to like put it, you want to put it in show notes or you want me to say it now? Yeah. Show notes is great. I think that it's interesting because I, I'm not such a social media person. One of the things that I am most grateful for is the amount of of <laughs> privacy that's in my field because it means that I don't have to have such a um, an overt social media presence. And I find that I like question myself too much. What like, am I being authentic or am I not being authentic? And so my relationship with social media in general has changed tremendously since October 7th in that I limit so much more of what I have access to, what, what, how often I will look at social media, putting timers on my phone to limit myself to 30 minutes a day and really only engaging in Jewish spaces. And, and I'm hearing from my clients as well, not just my clients, my sister actually, I have a younger sister who lives in really close by and she loves acting and she was looking for an improv group. And she said, I, I really want to find an improv group, but it's really important to me that I only find a Jewish improv group because otherwise I'm not going to feel safe to show up and be authentic. And I think that that's kind of like a mirror of what a lot of our experiences are with social media is that when you're putting something out there, it's not just in our own community, in our own bubble, in our own reflective spaces, it is to the wide public and technology has created the capacity for all of these like chatbots and fake profiles to go in and spam and troll all of these posts with really toxic and negative messaging to take away. And one of the wildest and most pervasive and common conspiracy theories that is deeply rooted in anti-Semitism is that Jewish people control the media. And it's really ironic to me because we are such a small portion of the population, like zero point. 2% of the world population. There's only 15 million Jews worldwide. And yet we are being accused of being controlling of all of these media outlets when really like we rely on non-Jewish voices to amplify ours because we're just too small of a group to make enough of a difference outside of our own spaces. So that's one piece of the puzzle that I'm thinking of, but I'm also thinking about the impact of the denial and the, it, there's almost like a, a complete perversion of the reality of everything that Hamas is doing to us is being accused of the IDF doing to the Palestinian people. And that's also, there's a lot of historical, historical implications of anti-Semitism in that in general. And that's something that's been, that's been repeated throughout history where the, the evils that were perpetuated on the Jewish people the Jewish people were then accused of perpetuating those evils on, on others. 
And I think that, you know, going back to something that Avital said earlier on in this podcast, that anytime there's someone who experiences any trauma, the natural instinct is to search for safety. Where can I go to find safety? How can I get help or to shut down? That's the freeze response, right? Like there's flight, run away, run away either by yourself or run away to get help. There's fight. I'm going to put up a fight and I'm going to try to defend myself or freeze. I'm going to shut down. And once there's the equilibrium that's reached, there's a desire a natural instinct to return to a place of safety. But there's no safety if everybody's either repeating, accusing, or denying. And I think that social media is one of those places where it's like really murky. And I have a few clients that are really, really struggling with it. And so when it comes to protecting from that information, I actually was in a session early on um, in the middle of October with a, a teenage client. And I was trying to shield myself from as much information as possible. And the client shared with me something that she had seen in the video. And I had to mitigate my own response and reaction in our session because I wasn't there to take care of myself. I was there to take care of somebody else. And so it kind of put me in this question of, you know, I think it was the original question you had asked Francisca about doing this podcast. Like how much do you have to know in order to be able to feel and how much is it possible to protect yourself from and still feel the reality of what's going on in the world? And that moment for me was probably like a very premier defining moment of this entire experience post October 7th of here's a, it's a child that's in my office who's having a very empathetic, understandable, compassionate and horrified response to this video that she saw. And I was unaware that the video existed because I was trying to protect myself. And then I was given this information during a time that I was not expecting to receive it. And so it was, yeah, really, what's really the answer? What the, I mean, there is no real easy answer. I, I really, I appreciated what Shoshana said about knowing yourself and knowing what your own capacity is and preparing yourself for having the emotional response that you may have. You know, when, when Kfir Bibas's birthday was coming up, I knew that day I needed to stay off of social media. I, I, I knew that I was going to be destroyed by everything that I was going to see. And so, you know, the couple days leading up to his birthday, I did a little bit of self-care, did some reflection, you know, shared other stories from other people, put things in my Instagram story. And then on his birthday, I said, I'm not touching it. I, I need to stay far away from this because I need to be able to function. And if I'm flooded with images of this baby that's in being held hostage in a tunnel all of these beautiful, beautifully produced AI images of, of a child in the darkness with a birthday candle, I'm not going to be able to function. I, I think you, you touched on something really important, and that is wanting to protect ourselves, but then by protecting ourselves, we're hit with these things in a time we're not expecting them and in a way that we're not ready for them. And I want to just point something out for those who have kids. Uh, my sister was saying to me that, you know, she's, her children are younger than mine. And uh, I think my niece will tell her, I don't know exactly how old she is. I think she's maybe five. And, you know, my sister explained, first of all, we're living in Israel. Like everybody knows we're at war. There's no hiding it. And there's sirens and there's no school and there, there's no hiding it. So, but depending on the child, you tell them what, you know, what details you feel like you should or have to. And so my niece knew that there were hostages, 
But she came home from school one day and said to her mother, who is my sister, very angrily, you didn't tell me there were kids there. And my sister was just, she said she, she could not speak and she did not know. And so while we try to protect our kids or other people, we have to also remember they're going to hear things from other people and we might want them to hear it from us first so that we can kind of control the way they hear it first. And this, by the way, comes with anything as a parent, but certainly, you know, things like this. And I know that we're not talking about visu visuals necessarily, but even information, even information is something we need to consider that hiding it or protecting them doesn't always protect them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something interesting also raising children in Manhattan on a very personal note. Here, we're obviously not, we're far from the war, but just walking in the streets, they're plastered with the poster signs, which we were very active in putting up. And so my kids knew right away that there were other children. And that was, actually, I heard a trauma psychologist speaking to the Robinson's conference a few months ago. He said that this is actually the most scary thing for children and just sort of in the news that they hear it's not the murder it's the specifically the kidnapping of children and that's really what that's like their vicarious trauma so just walking in the streets my children got used to this notion that kids are jewish children are being kept hostage and what was even more painful was as the weeks went on they started to notice that the posters were being ripped down or that people were writing hateful things on them. And they, of course, asked, why would someone do that? And it's really, it's kind of crazy that in 2024, I'm, I am being forced to have these conversations about antisemitism in a very, in a way that I never expected. I'm going to go back to the same question. And thank you, Carly, for saying <laughs> I, that's how I recruited all of you for this episode. How much do you need to know to feel? And I want to touch upon the feeling of, and as you said, you, you want to do it when you're in a space to do it, like you have an hour to cry. So you're going to seek the information or read that article you left for after. And it's like, you know, when children come to the parents and they want to confess something and they say, promise me you won't be mad or promise, right? And then they promise and then you say what you want to say and then the parents are, of course they're mad. I, I didn't know the information. I knew I shouldn't feel a certain way, but you don't know what you don't know until you know. So once you know, you start feeling a certain way. For me, it's nausea uh, very often or um, just a loss of appetite. The first few weeks I, I couldn't even eat. But every time there's, you know, a... a a new death that's that's publicized or some other horrifying detail, there's that punch in the gut with that nauseous feeling. And at the same time, there's that addictive, I have to go consume that information, knowing on one hand, it's that addictive nature, but on the other hand, it's we owe it to them to know what's going on. We deserve, besides for all that guilt, that we have, we're also trying to protect ourselves from those feelings and, and numb ourselves so we don't react every time someone is throwing information in our faces when we're not ready for it, which is happening. It's ongoing. And it's not the first time we're bringing these topics up on this podcast. And October 7th happened three months ago. But this is just, it's a daily thing. Who wants to comment? I'll add, as someone actually in the news 
industry, as someone who's been in the creation of the content that that we feel this urge to consume, I've really I can't I can't emphasize this enough for Jewish listeners who are generally already plugged in and who care. You really need to learn to hold back sometimes. It's just there. It's our souls cannot contain this the evil and the tragedy. And there is a way to be informed without constantly consuming that. And I think we all know that intellectually and just processing that emotionally and also just finding offline ways of, as you said, Carly, I mean, self-care is bandied about, but finding other things to do. You know, I, I remember the first few weeks after Sunday mornings, what am I going to do? I have three children. I have to think of an activity and sort of the natural thing for me to do was just to scroll, to doom scroll and read these news. But like that is doing no one any good. That is not doing my children good. And it's my job to raise the next generation of Jew- Jewish children. I'm going to take them out, pull myself together and take them to the park and take them to a museum and take them to the library, whatever it is. Just And, and what was interesting about that was that it wasn't just about them being entertained. It was actually really good for me mentally to force myself offline. And I just, I can't emphasize enough that the media has its agendas and its motivations. It needs to make money. We profit off of that addiction. We profit off of that uh, consuming urge to just constantly read more and get more information. But it is clearly not good for anyone. And it's the more that we can control ourselves, the better lives we will have. I think. And I say this, by the way, with totally self, like I'm going against my own, technically my own professional interests, right? I want you all to read my next article, but be smart about it. I think I can speak to this as just being here because on the one hand, it's it, obviously it's much closer. And it's more than, by the way, we haven't spoken about this yet, but it's more than just what happened October 7th and what's happening to the hostages. I mean, highly we're dying every day and you can't protect yourself from that. You, you're going to funerals. You're, you know, names, you're reading it every day. You're not getting away from it. And in three plus months, I can tell you, you don't need to know everything that's going on. You don't need to know every testimony. You don't need to see every mother eulogizing her son. You don't need to watch every wife eulogizing her husband or father eulogizing his daughter. You don't. And I don't feel that you need to have guilt that you didn't watch this interview or go to that interview. You don't. It is enough to know that people are losing their children and their spouses. It is enough to know that there are people being held hostage. It is enough to know that this country and our people are fighting for our existence. If you as a Jew, as a person listening to this, can pray, do something positive, donate, hug your children more, be a better person in honor of these people, you do not need to flood your brain with things that will never leave it. You don't. Because there is nothing positive coming out of you knowing all the details of what occurred to one person or two people or 10 people. I'm just telling you the truth. And this is speaking as someone who went to Kfar Aza, who went to the Nova site, who spoke to survivors. I do it because I advocate. I do it because that's how I function in this world. That is how I function as a Jewish person, as an Israeli who wants to put 
my strengths to use. And, and I do it for that reason. But I also volunteer and I also stand with other Israelis doing positive things, making sandwiches, making food for the Chayelim, going and doing barbecues for the Chayelim. And, and you know what? I do turn off my phone and I don't watch every interview because you can't. And I don't think anyone who thinks that there's a Jewish guilt and there's a responsibility. And, and Francisco, you said, you know, we owe it to them. I don't think that's true. I don't think you owe anyone anything. I think the only way you should be, the only reason that you should be watching or reading something is if you can take that and do something positive with it for your people. If it's only going to destroy you, who are you helping? There's no guilt. Anyone who is listening to this podcast should not be expecting us to say you should. Because, I mean, I'm not saying that. I don't think you should do anything other than what can help you be a better person. Sister, mother, daughter, father, whoever's reading, whoever's listening to this. I, and I, I emphasize that again. If you can donate, donate. If you can daven, daven. If you can volunteer, volunteer. If you can be of a good big brother, do that. Whatever you can do positively in honor of them, that's what you should do. Reading what happened to them, it ain't helping them. What if the information's offered to you? That's your choice. But no, I don't not want... offer to you. It's in your face. You didn't go seek it out. So if you feel that seeing these things are like if people if people you know, for example, me, if following me makes it harder for you, unfollow me for now. I I one hundred percent would say to you, if you are following me and my content disturbs you, unfollow me until God willing, this is over and protect yourself. I don't think you have an obligation to listen to me or anyone else if that is not good for you. That's it. I, I, it's, I can't say it any clearer than that. I think, I think we have to reclaim our agency in using social media, exactly as Shoshana is saying. We've all opted in. We've opted in to give our data to these monoliths. We've opted into following certain accounts. You can mute, you can snooze, you can just scroll by. I mean, we have agency. I think we've, it's messed with our brains so much, this notion that, well, it's in my feed, I have to consume it. No, you don't. No, you don't. And the people, I see this on a pastoral level, the people who are most disturbed are the ones who've really lost all agency, who really, who, who have allowed our virtual lives to really seep into our real lives in such a, in such in such a dangerous way. Yeah, I think Avital, what you and Shoshana just said kind of brings us full circle back to this idea of vicarious trauma because what the constant presence of all of these social media images, videos, articles, pictures, posters outside, right? What all of those are doing is it's a bombardment on the brain telling a person who's consuming this, you're not safe. There's nowhere you're safe. You're never safe. And and I made the mistake early like early on probably like right after October 7th of reading a comment section on a post. And I, I like needed to go for a walk outside after that, because I needed to do something that I had control over. And in that moment of looking at all of those horrific hate filled comments, I felt like the only thing I can control is putting one foot in front of the other. And, and so I think that what trauma does and what crisis does is it takes away our agency and one of the reparative responses to it is to try to claim it back. So Shoshana, your advice of do something nice, do something that builds, do something that's fulfilling, you know, like say a parak of Tehillim, if that speaks to you, take challah, if that speaks to you, 
read something positive if that speaks to you. Write down your feelings because your emotional reality is also valid and is also possibly worth consuming. It's definitely worth consuming for yourself in a few years. Your future self will be really grateful that you wrote down how you felt during this time right now. And, and so I think we're kind of back to where we started. So the one piece of the puzzle that we haven't talked about is empathy. Oh, how do you feel empathy if you're protecting yourself from all of this? And I think, Francisca, you said, you know, we owe it to them. And Shoshana, you connected that to guilt. And, and that really spoke to me because I think there is so much survivor's guilt. And I think for those of us who live in America or live outside of, of Israel, we feel like, how can life be going on? Like, how can I go to Target? <laughs> Which would be such a luxury in Israel, right? How can I go to Target and walk up and down the aisles and like coo at baby clothes when there's people being violated in tunnels and when there's hostages that, you know, we don't have proof of life from. And, and that is like a constant conflict that our brains are trying to reconcile on a regular basis. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom in, in Judaism to help us reconcile that. Avital, you talked about reading Eicha. And I think we have prescribed times of mourning, prescribed times of joy. And a lot of times there's a, a very big recognition in every tenant of Jewish life that sadness and destruction and loss always exists, even when there's simcha. I went to a wedding a couple of weeks ago and when, when the chassan stepped on the glass, it was like, there it is. That is what that moment of that glass being crushed, like that is what we are in all the time right now. And so I don't think we have to reinvent the wheel. I think it already exists. I think we have to learn from what's ours. And I think that that connects us as a people and helps build resilience and gives us the capacity for continuing to endure what's happening to all of us on a collective level and on an individual level. I think I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge that I have heard from multiple people in Israel that it's very hard for them to follow their American Jewish colleagues, friends, and see this vacation and that vacation and this going on. And so as much as I believe everything I just said, and I do, I also would like to say if there is someone who feels completely disconnected that I don't know. I, I don't even know how to say it. Right. I don't even know what I want to say. I don't even know if there's anything to say except I, that. <laughs> Let me. What? But, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no that's I, where I was going to go next. Everyone is sheltering themselves in the way they feel they need to. And again, when you don't know what you don't know, you don't know. So you're going about your life. And that is just by definition offensive to half the people you know and care about without even trying to be. And I'm in this public space, right? We, we all are in, in some way in a place where people are looking at what we're doing. And there's this constant judgment of, is this self-care or is this just oblivious to what's happening in the world? How, how can both realities? And I'm, I'm relearning how to live life. Every decision I make, every activity I choose to engage with, I'm thinking, is this appropriate? Is this not appropriate? Is this in the spirit? Is this not in the spirit? How do I connect this to the war so I don't feel guilt about engaging in X, Y, and Z? 
which is intimacy is the original question we started with, which is the ultimate, it's a mitzvah of pleasure and we have survivor's guilt and we have vicarious trauma. And this just goes full circle day after day, which is why we're doing this episode because my mind's just spinning day after day and I'm trying to create content. I want to get away from the war on some ends because we have all, we, we still have sexual abuse in the Jewish world. We still have the get the Guna crisis and we still have people in Bikur Cholem who are, you know, on life support. And Francisca, I just listened to the episode that you recorded with Sarah Rosner, um, where she talked about guilt and losing her son, Yassi. And uh, what you're describing was so similar to what she said her experience was like right after the loss of her son. And she described going to a shul event and someone coming over to her and schmoozing with her and not acknowledging the massive loss that she had just endured, which was a very public loss that everybody in our community knew about on a very granular level. And I think that where your, where your imagery is, is in like the cycle of grief and loss. And usually when there's trauma, we expect that grief and loss comes after the trauma, that we think that it's linear, that the process is there's, there's a crisis, a trauma, the trauma happens. And then at some point during this linear recovery, there's a, a grief and loss process that's experienced by the individual who experienced the trauma and anybody else who was impacted by it. But that's not the reality for anybody, any trauma survivors that I've ever met. The grief and loss happens the moment the trauma happens. And there's no such thing as a linear cycle after a trauma. It's all like a giant roller coaster bubble of, of chaos. And, and it changes and morphs with the time. And so I think that the answer to your question is, is really about being able to stay present in the moment and being able to be purposeful. I, I think that a lot of the things that we say about self-care is actually activities that we call self-care are actually activities of avoidance, like getting your nails done, getting a massage, going on a shopping spree. And a lot those can be done intentionally. They can be forms of self-care. A lot of the times we use them as avoidance and really true self-care is being intentional and on purpose, being in the present, being able to pay attention to our surroundings, making decisions that we can thank ourselves for later like folding your laundry is self-care, being intentional about what you eat and what you drink, remembering to drink water before two o'clock in the afternoon, that's self-care. And if you're picking a manicure over drinking water or going to a physician for a regular appointment, then is it really valid to say that you're exercising self-care because one is coming at the expense of the other? And so I think being able to be in the present and in the moment, finding that agency in that moment can be a way to hold those two conflicting realities of, yes, there's pain that's happening in the world. I don't have all the details about it. And it makes me feel really, really, really helpless. And there's something really special about being in this moment right now, if we're going back to that intimate space with the person that I love and care deeply about, and being able to do something that makes me feel alive. And that's challenging for a lot of people. And it can also be really meaningful when it's possible and accessible. If I may, I think it's it's a very American perspective to sort of like expect the world to be good, to allow me to have good moments in my personal life. Like 
coming from a Russian background, like, life is a tragedy, guys. The world is tragic. Like, by nature, it is tragic. And it is amazing and a miracle when we do have those good moments. So I under, I understand the tension and, and sort of definitely I've been there. I mean, we were we had planned a very long overdue necessary vacation that we obviously canceled because we just felt it was not appropriate to go right now. But I hope Bizrat Hashem to reschedule it soon. I mean, it isn't, no one, the Jewish people do not gain, do not benefit from us being run down and depressed. They just don't. The Jewish people needs us as strong as ever. And if that means, whatever that means, taking care of ourselves, it's necessary. And it's it's necessary for the greater good. It's not a selfish idea. I think this perspective that having those good moments during a time of tragedy and war is selfish. It's just, it's a false dichotomy. I just want to say one thing. I agree with everything that you guys just said. And I will say, when you speak with your Israeli counterparts, don't forget to be a little bit sensitive to what they're going through. Because again, this is not end in October 7th, and it's just not just the hostages that are experiencing severe trauma. We still have I think 100,000 people out of their homes. We still have burnt down villages. We still have intense trauma, dying soldiers, people who have been at war for eight, eight weeks. At, it's not eight weeks. What am I talking about? I don't even know where we are at this point. Like somebody the other day said to me, gosh, when, by the time Hanukkah comes around, I hope my kid is well adjusted to the new reality. And then she stopped and she goes, wait, wait, wait a minute. And I said, sweetheart, we just passed two Bishvat. And she just started crying. Because we are all very much stuck in October. And I'm just, I, I agree with everything you're saying. And just remember when you talk to the people in Israel to just remember to be a little bit sensitive. That's it. Just it's not just the people in Israel. It's it's your neighbor whose son lives in Israel and who's, you know, in Gaza or it, it's yeah. everywhere. It's do it, but, but. Be who you are, but self-care, but. And, no, and, 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 not but, and, and, yeah. I appreciate you all taking an hour out of your day to have this conversation because it's just ongoing and it keeps getting more intricate in the nuances because this is a reality. And, you know, this was the first Hanukkah we had together post-October 7th, the first Yeshiva week we had together and each each time or people will have, you know, their first simcha post October 7th and we're learning how to do this and the questions keep coming up and I wanted to provide this space for everyone to just have a little bit more acknowledgement of the feelings that are going around and yeah, any closing remarks? I just want to say that everybody should, as you said before, be aware of themselves and good to themselves. And it doesn't help anyone, like Avital said, like Carly said, it doesn't help anyone for you to be a wreck, for you to be a mess. It's, and, and I just, just as someone literally who chose to go to Kfar Aza and to, to witness these things, the, the people who don't choose to do that here, that's okay. Like nobody has to do anything. We actually just discussed this on the podcast. Like I went and won't go. And it's really important to know yourself, to know where you are. And there's no right or wrong answer that is good for every single person who's listening to this podcast. And it just, if I'm leaving anyone with that, with anything, I would just want to say that and that we're all in this together. Anything positive you can do is what you should be doing.
when you can. Okay, last question. Do you think the 47-minute video that was created, is that for Jews to watch or not? Okay, everyone's saying no. Absolutely not. Oh, right, this is a podcast. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. I'm not watching Don't it. It's re-traumatizing. Also, we haven't even talked about inherited trauma, uh, which I've been reading a lot about. I just finished Emotional Inheritance by Dr. Galit Atlas. It was excellent. She does a really deep dive into the science behind this. Carly, perhaps you can speak to this more. But this notion that so many of us have inherited trauma literally in our bodies, right? And that's also what's been flared up here, clearly. Uh, so why, I don't know, I think, uh, to be honest, it's hard for me to watch a fictional Holocaust film, let alone actual footage of something that just recently happened to people. It, it's uh, it's so important not to re-traumatize ourselves even more. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that inherited trauma is a good place for us to wrap up the podcast today, because I think that there's also a lot of inherited resilience. And... I am preparing for a class I'm giving next week for a Shabbat series on connecting with your spouse during trauma, during times of crisis. And this is the piece that I keep going back to is this inherited trauma and this inherited resilience and thinking about the women in Mitzrayim and the tochacha that Miriam Hanaviah gave her father when he tried to divorce Yocheved and saying to him, you're worse than Paro if you're not if you're not going to perpetuate the Jewish people, you are worse than the people who are the worst to us. And I think that that is also, you know, we can learn so much from our own history. You know, we look at the babies that were born in the refugee camps after the Holocaust and the weddings that happened and, and the amount of positive that came out of the literal ashes of our history And I think that we can all say with full confidence that our children, God willing, and our grandchildren, God willing, will say the same thing about this experience. And we'll be able to say we were, you know, we were there, we were witness to what we could be witness to, and we put in whatever positive we could put in. I think the intergenerational aspect is something that's really relevant and pervasive, and there's so much for us to learn from our past. Thank you all so much. Thank you for having us. Thanks. This was so meaningful. Yeah. I hope this does something for other people besides for myself. Yeah, I think people are struggling with this. I think you identified very well what people are struggling with, and I think it will help a lot of people. I hope. But I keep listening to, I listened to your episode, Shoshana, from last week, and I did episodes on this, but it just keeps coming back to it because then there's another soldier, and it's just like... It's an ongoing. I feel like I'm going crazy. Well, but it's good. It's good that um, you give yeah. people a space to talk and listen and identify. It's really, it's really important. It was so nice to spend time with this all of you. All. Thank, Thank you, you all so much. Bye bye. Bye guys. Thank you for sticking around until the end. If you enjoy this podcast, you can make sure to follow it, rate and review this podcast on whichever platform you use. Also, please share this podcast with your family and friends. I always appreciate the shares, the new connections, and the new reach outs I get from you and the old reach outs. I want to remind you that this podcast is part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com, so make sure to go and check out the other podcasts on the network, including Orthodox Conundrum, Intimate Judaism, and Chochmat Nashim. See you next week. Mm-hmm.